You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. Well, Merry Christmas Eve. Again, just following up with Justin, we're so happy you're joining us this morning, even though the weather isn't the friendliest out there, um, though it's been a really odd beginning of the winter, huh? I have like this really awesome snowblower on the front of my John Deere tractor that I was so excited to use this year. And uh, it's just sat there looking pretty in my garage. So I won't say I'm wishing for snow, but I'm excited to use it. It's new to me. (laughs) So um, this morning, as we're jumping into the message, just want to again say thank you. I guess we had an incredible, I wasn't here, my wife was here. I stayed home with the kids on Thursday night. We had an incredible blue Christmas service. If you don't know what that is, it's our first time celebrating it, but just wanting to take a moment in our lives to realize that in the midst of celebrating holidays, that holidays can be tough, right? That there's loss and there's people we miss and there's things we're going through. And so, you know, we kind of had a uh, service on really winter solstice, the longest night of the year, just commemorating this idea that though things are hard, I love this scripture in the psalm that says that hope comes in the morning, that joy comes in the morning. And that's what I kind of want to land on today, our message. And, you know, it's easy to come to service on a Christmas day and just kind of like, hey, this is what we do. This is our tradition. You know, we dress up a little extra. I even got nice shoes on for you today, um, which is extremely rare for me. But, you know, we dress up, we have these traditions around Christmas. We Maybe we get all the family together, you know, and we go to church on Sunday, and and then we're thinking about what we're going to eat afterwards and what we have to do. And and all those things are wonderful, but sometimes what that can do is cause us to just kind of get into this place of roteness or forgetting what we're actually doing. And what we're actually doing as people who believe in God, as people who believe that Jesus came, is we're celebrating Jesus. I mean, we give presents to each other, but it's not our birthday. It's his. And so there's this thing we have to do, and especially when we do something repetitively in our lives, we have to be careful not to make something repetitive where it's not actually special. And so Christmas Eve day, here we are, one day before Christmas, 2023, and However long you've been alive is how many times you've celebrated this day. Well, this is what I'd ask. Let's, let's try to set aside everything that we just have this, this roteness to or this tradition to. And let's just say, God, would you speak to me in a fresh way today? Maybe you're coming into church for the first time in a very long time. I'll tell you this. God wants to speak to you. Jesus isn't a distant God. And we have this idea like, Jesus was this story from a couple thousand years ago, and and he did this thing, and it was incredible, and that's really cool, and now there's a church because of it called the Christian Church, and and we kind of just have this idea of it, but it feels distant. It feels almost like this story long, long ago, but the reality is, and what we sing and celebrate every Sunday, not just on a Christmas service Sunday, is that Jesus is with us now. He's not separated from us. He's not distant from us. He's he's with us. That's what Emmanuel literally means. And when we say Emmanuel with us, and you read through some of the scriptures in the New Testament, what I would like to remind us is that 
Jesus literally says, I want to come and make my home in your heart. There's another scripture where it says, him and his father want to reside with us. You know what that means? It means he's moving in. Like, into your bedroom, maybe not the spare bedroom, give him the nice one. Like, in your house, in your life. Have you ever had a roommate? They're in everything. Sometimes in ways you don't want. That's Jesus. He wants to be in every part of your life. Jesus isn't the roommate where you get to claim certain things in the fridge and certain things are his. No, everything becomes his. That's what Christianity is about. And so when we celebrate on Sunday, when we celebrate Jesus on a Christmas service like this, we have to remember we're here to remember him and what he's done. Now, again, we want to elevate Jesus in this time, but there's a reality that Jesus impacts our life in the greatest way possible. And that's what we want to remember. That no matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, what you've been through, that Jesus literally today wants to change your life for the better. He wants to come and meet you wherever you're at. No matter what has happened to you before this, he wants to meet you. He's not distant. So before I even get into my message, I wanted to just lay that groundwork to remind us, like, hey, let's just not have another Christmas service. I'm not into that, just so you know. I could stay home and find lots of other things to do. And so could you. So let's be serious. Like, let's literally let the God of the universe impact our lives today. Not some other day, not some other service, but right now, right here. And so this, this message today, I want to start in Matthew 12. If you have Bibles, you can open up with me. Scriptures will be on the screen. We also always like to remind you that we have Bibles on bookcases there in the back. They're free for you to take. So if you'd like to take one home today, that is for you. But I want to open up in Matthew 12 with a story of Jesus. And what's kind of happening here is he's kind of in the middle of his ministry now, right? He's He's been around, he's been traveling around, he's been speaking. There's been some incredible messages. In Matthew 5, we have this, Matthew 5 really through 7, we see this incredible Sermon on the Mount. Some of Jesus' greatest words and his sermon about life and all these things. And we get into Matthew 12 and he's a ways in his ministry. And in fact, he's so far in his ministry now that a decent amount of people kind of know he's the Messiah. And so you have to understand that as a Jewish person, like even what um, Justin referenced to, that there were these prophetic words from 500 years before with Daniel, and even further back from that, about a Messiah that was going to come and rescue Israel, a Messiah that was going to come and rescue his people, a Messiah that was going to come and save them. And so there was this, this eager look forward to saying, someday someone's going to come. He's going to be our Messiah, and he's going to set up the kingdom of God. Now I'll just tell you this. They thought it was going to happen in a way it didn't happen. For the Jews and for the Israel people at the time, they thought Jesus the Messiah or whoever the Messiah was, was going to come and set up a literal government. Meaning that they would replace the Roman Empire, which is the empire that ruled over, the, over them at the time. They would replace all the governments of the world and there would be this kingdom of God in this literal sense. But Jesus comes with a very different message about the kingdom of God. And so they're looking for the Messiah, and some are starting to believe, in Matthew 12, some are starting to believe that maybe this man Jesus 
is actually the Messiah. Now he's told some people already. He's even told the Pharisees some, and they just don't believe him. He's told some people, and they do believe him. But we're picking up in Matthew 12, and the reason I give you that background is you have to understand at this point, the Pharisees now don't like Jesus. The Pharisees are the religious people of the day. They're the, they're the Christians in that day. You've got to be careful with that. But they're the ones that think they know everything. I'm sure no Christians do that, right? They're the ones that think they understand exactly how God's going to work. If you've been around God and church and Jesus for any period of time, I will just tell you this. You don't know how he works. In fact, as soon as I think, I get like an angle on like, oh, yeah, this is how Jesus works. And he does something completely different. And I'm like, man, I don't, I don't get it. I tell you, if you want to last in Christianity, you have to be good at shrugging your shoulders at times. You have to be good at going, I don't understand. I don't see the whole picture. I'm not sure what this really looks like, and I'm not sure how God always works in certain ways. And that's okay. But the Pharisees, they thought they understood God completely. They thought they understood what the Messiah would look like completely. And so they have this pinpointed kind of idea of the Messiah, and Jesus isn't lining up with this idea, and so they're not liking him. So understand all that, but now let's read Matthew 12. We're going to start in verse 9. So Jesus, he's going about, actually, I'll just pick up real quick. He's walking about, um, and he's ministering to people, and specifically today that this story lands on is the Sabbath day. And on the Sabbath day, for the Jews, they can't do any work, and when I say they can't do any work, they mean literally anything. Even to this day, Jews that are are very strict with the law, they won't do anything that looks anything like effort. Um, I literally was in New York City ministering in the Jewish part of New York City, and it was on Sabbath, which is Saturday for them. And this woman came out, and she grabbed my wife. This is not a joke. Came out of a house, a stranger. We don't know who they are. And says, can you please come with me? And so Jessica goes in the house with her. And the whole reason she asked her to come in the house was this. She had forgotten to, to put the timer on her oven for food that day. And she needed a Gentile, which just means someone who's not a Jew, to turn the knob for her. She wasn't allowed to. So Jessica turned the knob for her and we left. It's like a very strange thing. This is, this is in 2000, like 20-something. This is not 2,000 years ago, but 2,000 years ago, they were extremely strict. So they were hungry. Jesus and the disciples were hungry. And it says that as they passed by some grains of wheat, they picked the heads off the grains of wheat, and they began to chew on them because they were hungry. And the Pharisees became infuriated over this. They were angry because what did they say? Oh, look, he's working. He's harvesting grain. And they were looking for something to blame on Jesus. So that's exactly how this starts. But we're going to get to verse 9. It says, then Jesus went over to their synagogue. So now the, the Jews and the Pharisees that were upset with him, he decides to go to their synagogue. Verse 10, where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? So listen, they're doing, actually it says it right there. They were hoping he would say yes so they could bring charges against him. So trying to trap him. They already know that many times he's worked on the Sabbath. He's healed people on the Sabbath, which is considered work. He's now picked these grains and eaten them on the Sabbath. 
consider work. They want to bring charges against him. Verse 11, it says, And Jesus answered, If you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, it says, Then he said to the man, Hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored, just like the other one. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. Listen to this story. Now here you've got Jesus. He's a little hungry, so he eats some grain, breaks their rules. And then he comes to their synagogue, and they try to trap him. And there's this man with a deformed hand, and there's this incredible miracle that takes place. This miracle happens where where literally his hand is made right, just like the other one. And what is the response of the religious people? Let's kill him. Let's kill him. Like, think about the absurdity of this. But here's the thought. We can read this now and and think, well, this is absurd. But the truth is, as Christians, sometimes we can fall into this very same trap. You see, God works in ways we don't expect him to. In people, we don't expect him to. And sometimes we can have this judgmental attitude towards the things that God is actually doing, and we can actually be those that bring death to others, not literally, because we keep them from seeing the God who's really here. You see, right now, Jesus isn't with us in literal person form anymore. It says he sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us. But yet the Holy Spirit lives in us as Christians. And so as Christians, we're the actual representation and reflection of Jesus in this world. Often we don't reflect overly well. We don't want to be like these Pharisees who end up seeing God doing good things, but honestly becoming the very barricade to people who need Jesus. So this man experiences this incredible miracle, and then they plot to kill Jesus. Verse 15, it says, but Jesus knew what they were planning. So he left that area, and many people followed him. He healed all the sick among them. I like that. But he warned them not to reveal who he was. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him. Now let's read this. So here's a prophecy from Isaiah, from the Old Testament, that Matthew's recording. It says, this fulfilled the prophecy, and he quotes this from Isaiah 42. He says, look at my servant, whom I have chosen. This is talking about the coming Messiah. He is my beloved, who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious, and his name will be the hope of all the world. It's the scripture I want to focus on. Today, his name will be the hope of all the world. Hope is an interesting thing, isn't it? You know, all sorts of societies have written about hope, not just Christians, not just religious people, but there's this idea of hope, and hope is kind of an intangible thing at the same time, right? It's like, it's not something you can kind of grab hold of very easily, it's it's this sense of emotion or this feeling or maybe even this passion or, or it's this idea of 
believing for something that might happen, but you're not sure it'll happen. You know, this is how I want to best describe hope to you today. This is my way of viewing it. It's like going out on a limb. A limb that you're not sure is going to hold up. But you trust that it will. And so you go out believing that something good can happen. And you're out on a limb. And there's this kind of risky place with hope, isn't there? Because hope has the opportunity for great sadness in it. Hope has the opportunity for all sorts of things to happen that aren't what we desired to happen. And so there's this hope word that we see that Jesus is going to be the hope of all the world. Now, he's quoting Isaiah 42, and I want to just tell you a little bit about Isaiah 42. It's in your notes there, too. But Isaiah 42, if you don't know about the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is a, a really interesting book in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Some people refer to it as the little Bible. So Isaiah is actually broken up into 66 chapters. Does anybody know how many books are in the Bible? 66 books. And Isaiah is broken up into two sections, really, two big themes that happen in it. And the first section is 39 chapters long. And there's 39 books in the Old Testament. And then the rest of those chapters, 40 through 66, have a different theme. And this is what's interesting. In that first theme of Isaiah and all of his prophetic words that are words from God that he's speaking out to the nation of Israel from chapters 1 through 39, there's, they're honestly kind of like not good words. They're not fun to hear. They're really about judgment. They're about all the things that they've done wrong. They're, it reminds them of all the ways they've strayed from God and it reminds them of even who God is, but how humanity has failed God. 1 through 39, rough chapters in Isaiah. And actually, if you read the Old Testament, it's a similar theme. The entire Old Testament kind of shows us that humanity sucks at times. That honestly, we're on this repetitive cycle of thinking we know better than God. I mean, if you want to understand sin, right, people are confused by sin. We think sin is just this list of rules. It's not. It's really us thinking we know better than God and deciding to live our own way and not his way. And so the Old Testament is this kind of picture for us when we read it of what humanity looks like when we repeat our mistakes over and over and over. You see the Israelite people, they repeat the same mistakes, and you see God in his mercy, but then, there's, then there is judgment, and there's consequence to decisions. There's all these things, and it's kind of like, ugh, that's a, the Old Testament can be kind of rough to read. It's why, as Christians, we like to just live in the New Testament. It's why we call our church New Testament Church. Yes, we believe in the Old Testament. But the New Testament is where we live as Christians, actually. Because what happens is Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew. And it's what we're celebrating this weekend. And everything changes from what it was like before. And in fact, these, these next chapters in Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, are all about the restoration and reconciliation of God's people. It's all about God rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the people of God. And, and that's actually when we start to see all of these prophetic words about this coming Messiah. 
This one who's going to come, and it calls him Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it describes him over and over, this, this servant, this suffering servant, this blessed servant, who's going to come and change the tide of how things go for humanity. That's what chapters 40 through 66 are. And 42 is the beginning of us hearing these descriptive prophecies about a Messiah, and it says that he would be the hope of all the world. Now, this is actually a very radical statement for the Jews. Because in their mind, God wasn't there to rescue the whole world. He was there to rescue them. Because they were the chosen people of God. It was just them. They were the most important ones. In fact, God was going to just get rid of all the others and elevate us, and it's going to be wonderful. But yet this word, when it says that he would be the hope of all the world, in some other translation of the Bible, it actually says he'll be the hope of the Gentile world. And the Gentile, it's just literally a word that means everyone that isn't Jewish. And so for the prophecy of the Messiah to come was always supposed to be inclusive of everyone, that God wants to bring hope into the world, not for a selective group of people or certain chosen ones, but literally for every human that has ever breathed on this planet. Guess what that means? There's hope for you. There's hope for your situation. There's hope for your marriage. There's hope for the relationships between you and your kids. There's hope for the illness that's in your body. There's hope for things that actually seem hopeless in our eyes. There's actually hope because Jesus says, I've come to be the hope of all this world. But I know this thing with hope inside us as humans, it's almost like I'd rather just live as a realist. I I kind of am that guy. Like, I'm optimistic, I'm a fairly positive person, but I'm pretty much a realist, too. And so when something doesn't go well, I I don't have a, a struggle immediately evaluating going, okay, that's not working, let's just stop. Or this isn't going the way I expected. I'm not going to keep doing that said thing. I, I really come to those conclusions really easily, actually. I'm not overly afraid of making a mistake or even kind of looking like a failure. I'll just course correct and I'll go on. But you see, what hope does, and what hope is kind of frustrating in its design does to us, is it means that when we hit failure or when we hit hard situations or when we hit something that doesn't look like it's supposed to, we're supposed to keep going. It means that when you're hoping for an impossible situation to change for the better, but it looks impossible, or maybe you've actually hoped over and over and over and over and over. Maybe you've prayed for years and years and years for a situation, and that situation doesn't shift. And so you want to come to a place where you just settle in your heart, hey, this is the way that it is. I don't understand it, but that's okay. And you want to move on, but then this thing called hope comes in. It almost like needles you a little bit, right? It kind of elbows you to be uncomfortable, to be like, I just don't know if I'm supposed to stop hoping now. Have you ever been faced with a situation like that in your life where it's just like, I'd rather rather just settle 
with the, the tough reality of this than to keep hoping for something to actually change. You know, in our families, we've dealt with family members with addiction for decades. And you pray and you pray and you pray and you believe and believe for change. And if anybody's ever walked with someone in addiction or even prayed for someone in addiction, it's just this constant cycle where you're like, you just almost give up, right? You're at this place where you're like, whatever. You, we don't know, even know what to do anymore with you. And there's this struggle and there's this place. But then, and at, and at times even in our family, we just get so fed up with a certain situation. We just almost give up on it. But then somehow, if you know Jesus, he comes in and, and almost annoyingly makes you hope again for something. Like comes and somehow awakens you a little bit more to go, okay, okay, I'm going to. I'm going to believe for something more. This is what Jesus wants to do in us today. I think it's what Jesus wants to remind us of today. That when he came to live as a human in this world, when he came as a baby in a manger, it wasn't just for some show of how cool God is. You know, sometimes we make Christianity so much about just glorifying God, which please don't get me wrong, it is. But really, Jesus did those things not for himself, but for his children. The Bible literally says that he's given us all this opportunity to become children of God. We're his children. And when he comes and the, suffer, the suffering that he went through and the sacrifice that we, he went through and all the things that he's gone through, it was so that we could have a chance of a life that's not possible without him. This is what hope is. Hebrews 10, 23, the Hebrews writer, we don't actually know who it is, but he says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us hold tightly. The word there literally means grip without letting up. You know, I think about um, sometimes I try to carry things I shouldn't carry. I did this week. Uh, I was working on a, a John Deere tractor for someone, and I had to take the whole engine out. And I thought, oh, I can do this myself. And I did. I took it out. I worked on it. But when I had to go put it back in, you know, there was kind of just this small lip on one side, on the left-hand side, and I'm right-hand dominant. And I started to lift it up, and I was halfway over to the tractor to put it back in, and my fingers started to slip, and I could feel it. And it's like just, you know, fingertips width to hold on to. And so I'm literally like looking at my left-hand fingers, like trying to coach them, like, don't give up. You can get it on there, just don't drop the engine, because this job will get much worse. <laughs> and I'm like trying to strengthen those fingers and make them stiff, and I just get it over to the frame, and I put it in place. And I was thinking about this idea of hold tightly to it. That's what it's like. You know, hold tightly, sometimes, I don't know, we can just maybe think of something, it's like, oh, I put my hand on, and yeah, I don't want to let go of it. But the truth is, it's like you're holding on for dear life. It's like you, if you let go, something terrible is going to happen. If I let go, that engine's going to fall and I'm probably going to break it. 
There's this let go idea that actually has a consequence to it. And so when he says hold tightly to it, it's this grip that we're not supposed to let go of. And I think he's saying this to us because hope wants to evade us at times. I guess hope doesn't. I should say the enemy wants hope to evade us. And if you don't know that, there's a real enemy. Jesus says, literally, the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So there's someone who wants to actually discourage and cause us to give up and cause us to let go of that grip. And so it's easy at times, especially hope, because it seems intangible in our lives, to just let go of it, live with the reality of our lives, and just kind of make it through life and hope that things get better someday. Or maybe even as a Christian, we just think, oh, I'm just hoping for the day that I die. <laughs> I'll get to heaven then. And there's an, that's an absolute hope that we have. But there's also a hope for today. There's a hope that God wants to do something in me today. God wants to do something in my situation today. God came to this world to live amongst us, not just for us to have some place to go when we die, but actually for our lives to be transformed here and now. It's why Jesus heals everyone he sees. Because he wants to change their life then. He could have easily just said, listen, if you believe in me, person with deformed hand, don't worry. When you die, your hand's going to be new. I'm sorry, that kind of feels a little lame to me. I think Jesus wants to heal us today. Now, listen, I don't have faith sometimes even for it. But I believe that Jesus can heal and wants to heal. I believe that Jesus wants to transform our minds. I believe Jesus wants to make us whole in our mental state. I believe Jesus wants to change us today. Not just give us a hope that one day when we die, there will be this great place called heaven. But actually what Jesus teaches his disciples in the Our Father prayer that most of us would know at some point in our lives. He says, um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's literally telling them, pray that, my, that heaven and that the kingdom of God comes now, not just when you die. And so there's this place where Jesus is going around and he's, he's giving hope to these people, something that maybe they have never had or hadn't had for a very long time. And we can look at this society, we can see all the reasons why hope would have been hard for them because they lived under tyranny with the Roman Empire and, and they lived in you know despair in different ways and there's difficult things going on and there was you know segregation in society and there was all sorts of stuff happening that could easily just label it hopeless. But the truth is we can look at our lives today and we can live in the same place of hopelessness as them. In fact, if you watch the news too long, it's easy to get there. If we just constantly look at the world and how it seems to be spinning out of control at times, it's easy for us to lose this hope. And, and then we just become almost these, you know, like, hey, just, you know, preparation type people where we're like, well, I'm going to take care of my family and my own. And we stockpile our basements and we start to post weird memes and we do weird stuff. Like, this is not the hope of what Jesus has for us. The hope in our life is that, honestly, he can change us. The hope is that he can actually change 
the world in which we live. The hope is that as he changes people from the inside, the world changes on the outside because the world is the way it is because of the way people are on the inside. That's why Jesus understood, if I just come and set up a new government with new laws and rules, nothing will change. In fact, you can look at the Old Testament and see that it didn't work. And so instead, he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to make my home in your heart. I'm going to bring hope into your life in a different way. And when you change on the inside, everything on the outside will change. This is what he has for us. We're supposed to hold tightly to it. What is this hope that we're to hold tightly to? Psalms 119, it says, You are my refuge in my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Matthew 121. We read this just last week. Just the story of Jesus' birth in this moment where the angel appears to David or to Joseph talking about him having this son, and he says, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So you have this name, Jesus. And it actually means the Lord saves. That's what the, the word Jesus means. And I think when, when God comes and tells Joseph to name his son this, and, and knowing obviously this is the son of God, that when he decides to boil down the name that should ring true above every other description, and we see all these other descriptions, wonderful counselor, mighty, you know, everlasting father, prince of peace, all those things, mighty God, and we see all these names of God in the Old Testament, but when, when we need to see something literally named, they say the name is Jesus, and that boils down to saying that he saves. I think... As Americans, we don't like to need to be saved. In our minds, it's like, no, we're, we're good. We're fine. We'll figure it out. We'll do it on our own. We don't need any help. But the truth is, the longer you live, I think it's easier to recognize that, that a lot of us are just faking it. We're looking good on the outside, but on the inside, things are... In disarray, <laughs> things are hard, things are struggling, and so we put on a good face day after day, and we try to live for certain things that don't really fulfill us, but we try to act like they fulfill us, and there's this whole thing that's going on, and we're trying to look and be a certain way, but the reality is what we need is the same thing that the Israelites needed, which is a Savior, someone who saves us. And you know what we need saving from most? Ourselves. We need saving from ourselves. I see, I see this happen all the time in people's lives. They, they make radical decisions because they're really unhappy where they're at. And they're like, just like, oh, it's this thing. It's my job. It's my boss. It's these friends. It's where I live. And so they make this crazy shift in their life. And maybe they move to another state and get a different job and a different thing. And, a, and all these different whole lives happening. And then somehow I talk to them later and they're like, oh, I'm still, I still feel the same way. I'm like, yeah, because guess what? You follow you. You can't get away from yourself. It's impossible. 
And so the only way forward in our life, if we're honest with ourselves, is to say, God, I need a transformed version of me. Not the broken version that I've maybe put together and pieced together over these years of my life. Not the version that the world even says I'm supposed to be. But God, what is the version, the design that you have had for me literally since the beginning of time, Scripture says. 2 Timothy, it's my life verse. says that before time began, he knew us. That he had purposes and callings for us. And I, I think to myself, I've quoted this this quote many times, it's actually on my Facebook since uh, 08, and it's the one thing I write about myself in the About Info. It says this, with God's help, I'll become myself. Because there's this reality where the world tries to make us someone we're not, and coming to Jesus makes us who we're supposed to be. But the problem is we don't like to recognize it or it's hard to recognize that. And so we actually need someone who comes and shows us there needs to be a different way in your life. This is what saving means. When Jesus comes to save us, it's to show us that we're lost and we don't know it yet. You know, I've talked about repentance here a lot of times. And I know it's a word in Christianity. People are like, ugh, repentance. Like, that's gross. But repentance, I, I know Christians have made it honestly weird and awkward. But the reality, this is what it means. It just means to turn around. That's all it means. It means I'm headed somewhere. I finally decide to realize I'm lost and I turn around. That's what it means. And when Jesus says, hey, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, that's his message, right? That's how his message starts in Matthew. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, I know when I say those words, a lot of people picture the guy on the street corner with the signs and the, and the bullhorn, repent. And, and I'm like unhappy that those people exist. Because the truth is, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near is an actual incredible invitation. It means, hey. You're lost and you're going the wrong way. Hey, you're going to fall off a cliff, but look right over here is the kingdom of heaven. The promises of joy and peace and forgiveness and, and purpose and all the things that God has for us. It's right over here. All you've got to do is turn around. That's what it literally means to be saved. A recognition that my way isn't really that great of a way. And that if I would just turn and look towards Jesus, I'd see something much more incredible. In fact, I'd see what God has always designed me to be. But for some reason, we're, we just want to be like, nope, I'm good. I'm happy. I'm good. Just got to medicate myself with all sorts of things, money and reputation and status and drugs and all the stuff that just makes me feel good for a moment. I'm good over here. I'm happy. And then we get to maybe in our mid-50s and we have something that the world calls a midlife crisis and really I just think it's God's way of slapping us in the face to say, what are you actually doing? But then sometimes we, we just do dumber things in midlife crisis. It's like we just ramp up the ability to ignore God over here saying, hey, I have a different way for you. 
this is Jesus' message for us. This is the hope he has for us, that there is a life that you can't design yourself, but that he can, that is far above anything you can possibly think or imagine. The scripture literally says that. That's the hope for us. 1 Peter 1, 3 it says, It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Now we live with great expectation. Actually, I want to turn there. I want to read this. We're coming to an end here in a moment. 1 Peter 1, we'll start in verse 3. It says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. That's what that word means when... You know, sometimes you hear Christians say, oh, are you born again? You're like, what are you talking about? It literally just means this idea of saying, listen, I want to be changed. I want God to renew me. I want to be who God's called me to be. It says it's by his great mercy we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. That word great expectation is the exact same Greek word, hope. Because you see, hope is actually not just this idea of like, Oh, I kind of hope it happens. It's an expectation for something to happen. It's an expectation for something to change. It's an expectation that God's going to show up in a miraculous way. It says, now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation. There's this wonderful joy it goes on to talk about. This hope that God has for us. And this is what I would challenge you today. What does God want you to hope for? For some in this room, it might be simply this, to start a new life. And when I say that, I don't mean like move away and change your name and, you know, be different in that way. I mean, start a new life with God today. That in a moment, and with a declaration of our mouth, that literally God can make us new. That he can put us on this journey of not going our own way anymore, but actually going the way that he's called us to go, going towards him, to be filled with all the things that he promises us to be filled with, joy and peace and salvation and wholeness and all the stuff. And what I love is that the things that he promises us aren't dependent on our external circumstances. They're just dependent on our our, our eyes on him. They're dependent on, are we going the right direction? What is God calling us to hope for today? Maybe there's some specific situations in your life that you're just like, I don't know how to hope for this. I think God wants you to hope again today. You know, a few weeks back, my wife and I shared that we're pregnant since then we've had some pretty serious complications with the pregnancy in fact without a miracle the prognosis is terrible I found myself last week with this information going where's the God of hope now 
And I was challenged in my heart and in my core because Jesus is literally saying, will you hope for a miracle? Maybe beyond even what the doctors are saying or what the tests are saying. Would you believe for something beyond that? And the truth is, I didn't really want to. I just wanted to be like, wow, life sucks. But the truth is, Jesus wants to show up in power in our lives. He wants to show up with hope. Look at this scripture in Romans. It says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Listen to this. Then, listen, Christianity is all sorts of full of ifs and thens. There's a part we have to play. He says, if you trust in them, it says, then you overflow with confident hope through the power of of the Holy Spirit. We have to put our trust in Jesus today. Put our trust in God today. And then his confident hope can literally overflow. Do you need God's confident hope in your life today? I do. I'm desperate for it. I'm desperate to see God move in a miraculous way. I'm desperate to see Jesus show up in my life and in my family. I'm desperate for him to move in Messina in the North Country and in our nation. I'm desperate to see the hope of this world actually change the world. God wants to awaken that in all of us today. Why don't we stand this morning? I want to pray for two groups of people in just a moment. What we're going to do is the team's going to play a song. I'm going to pray. The team's going to play a song. I've asked a few couples to come forward to be ready to pray for you because this is what I'd like to do is give an opportunity to two groups of people. The first group is this. If you want to start that relationship with God today, if you want to stop going your own way and turn towards Jesus and start this relationship with him, it can happen in a moment. I would like you to come forward when this song is done. And then the other group, maybe you know Jesus already. Maybe you already have that relationship, but you've realized that maybe the hope has kind of drained out of your life. That you're just kind of going through the motions of Christianity or life, and you just, you know God has more for you. Then I would ask you to come forward when the song is done and literally just lift your hands and say, Jesus, I need you more. Jesus, I want hope again. I'm believing that we're going to walk out of this place different than when we came in today. That every one of us is going to have something that God has done in us. So I'm going to pray over you and then the team is going to play and then we'll invite you up right after. Father, we just thank you this morning that you're here with us. God, we thank you you're not distant from our lives, from our situations. From our circumstances, God, we thank you that you are the hope of all the world, that there's no segregation of hope available for one group and not for another. God, that every person in this place, every person online has this availability to invite you in. So Jesus, we invite you in this morning. Jesus, we ask for your hope this morning. Jesus, we ask for you to come into our lives in a fresh way, God. For some of us, we ask you to come into our lives for the first time. And God, we just give our lives to you in Jesus' name. As the team plays, 
feel free to come up at any time. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.